John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord, saints. Give it your full attention. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple, or he, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, oh, in the law of Moses, commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin or among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Saints, may God add a blessing to the reading of His Word and now to the preaching of His Word. You may be seated. Saints of God, what is at the heart of our hope in this life? As pilgrims who are in this land, who are in the context of sin and temptation, what is our hope for us? Our hope for us is none other than the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it's not a saving work by which we can know only at the final day, at the final day of judgment, whether or not Christ did enough. But St. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we can know now, this very second, that we are freed from sin. Jesus Christ, then, saints, is all of our hope. He is all of whom we place our faith in. And we, because of such great hope we have in Christ, who is our surety, St. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 33, Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Isn't this what we, or rather what inspires men to write such great songs, songs that we sing, such as, My name is graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. I know that while with God He stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see Him there, who made an end of all my sin. Saints of God, there is no charge that any demon, that any devil, that any wicked man here on earth can make against you. And the reason why is because there is no charge that one can make against Christ. And since there is no charge one can make against Christ, 
There is no charge one can make against you. That is a great summary of John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The reason why this woman was freed of her sin was not anything in and of herself, but it's because of whom she's united to. It's Jesus Christ. Christ's mysteries are our mysteries. There is no distinction. The star of John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is Christ, yes indeed. But it is Christ seen in this woman as well. That this woman here shows us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's set the scene if we would. Verses 1 and 2 of our text say, But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, He came again into the temple area, and all the people were coming to Him. And He sat down and began teaching them. We see here a, a hallmark of our Christ's earthly ministry. That Jesus Christ was a teacher. Here He comes to the temple area and to do what He typically did. And that is He would enlighten the minds of men. So as the Lord is sitting down with others teaching, verse 3 begins the story of hypocrisy, but also the triumph of mercy and grace. Verse 3 and 4, Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, and after placing her in the center of the courtyard, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Again, this opening scene of John chapter 8 is one of silence. For when people would hear Christ, they would lean in, I'm sure. They would try to capture every single word that came from this man's mouth. From the mere power of his words and his thoughts, Jesus Christ demanded attention. Very much like now. A room of silence. And imagine, from the doors, a group of men are bringing a woman who's been caught in a sin, coming from afar, as Christ is teaching. I'm sure you can hear the, the sandals of these men, like a gallop of horses coming to Christ. And with Christ, there is a woman. Here we see the Bible introduces us to two characters now. There is the woman... And there is the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, let's first consider the woman. In verse 3, we immediately know all that we need to know about this woman. This woman has been caught in adultery. Adultery, saints, is one of the most wicked sins that one could ever do. It is this woman who was married. She is a woman who vowed to have, only have eyes for her husband who vowed to only give her husband her love. And here we see her gross sin is put to the light, in front of the light, Jesus Christ. Adultery again, saints, is an evil and wicked sin. For it is not only rebellion against God's law, but it breaks the covenant of marriage. It tears families apart. It emotionally scars and wounds individuals. It is, saints, a gross sin. It is, in the eyes of many, an unforgiving sin. And here this woman, who was caught in such evil act, 
And such an evil and wicked sin is brought before the Lord. And not brought before the Lord, saints, handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. She's not brought behind, uh, in front of the Lord um, with, no, with no scars or maybe bruises from her wrists. But the text says the scribes and the Pharisees brought and caught this woman. This, this idea of catching carries the idea of being dragged by force. That as soon as they caught her, they, they captured her and drug her out. She is being dragged to the Lord by force. I'm sure this woman is screaming for help. I'm sure this woman, as she's being brought to the Lord, is crying out for mercy. I'm sure she's saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. As these religious leaders are bringing her to Christ. Now, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, simply put, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. But saints, these men were far from being morally upright. When we think of a religious elite, we think of people or men who are morally upright. But these men were far from being morally upright. In fact, our Lord in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 33, gives us a vivid description of who these scribes and Pharisees are. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and dill, and come in and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and forgiveness. But these are the things you, have, you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out the gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish, so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and, unclean, and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs for the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers... We, have not been, we would have not been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers, you snakes, you offspring of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? This is what Christ thought of the Pharisees. This is what captures best who the Pharisees were. Not merely outwardly, but more so inwardly. Outwardly, they look like the man. But inwardly, they are dead. And Christ's descriptions of these evil leaders is best exemplified in our text this morning, saints. For we are to think that these men are bringing this woman to Christ in order that Jesus Christ, in order that they also may uphold the law of God. We are to think, saints, that these men are bringing this woman to Christ because they are so in love with the law of God and they're so in love with people upholding the law of God that they want people to live morally upright lives. 
But rather these men bring this woman to Jesus for one reason and for one mission only, and that is to kill Jesus Christ. That is why these men bring this woman to Jesus. These religious men do not bring this woman to the synagogue, to the temple. Do not try to work out this woman's sin. Does not, don't try to conversate with her to try to help her, but rather they bring her to her death. The religious elite of the day. <clears throat> and this is what our text says in verse 6. Now they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. You must understand, saints, that at this time the, the popularity of the scribes and the Pharisees were slowly diminishing. They, they, were, they, were, they were losing all of the popular vote amongst the people. The people were starting to lose respect for these religious leaders. And they're choosing to follow Jesus Christ. And saints, in the mind of the Pharisees, they can't have this man from Nazareth, this man from Galilee, take over and win the people. This man cannot win. So the scene is set. We have Jesus. We have these liars and hypocrites who are the scribes and the Pharisees. And right there in the center... We have a woman. We have this woman who stands before Christ. The back of her is the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm sure shame and guilt and embarrassment covered her from head to foot. And what will happen next, saints, is now we will enter into a courtroom. And all three characters will be put on trial. Not just Christ and not just the woman. But all three, Christ, the woman, and the scribes and the Pharisees, will be put on trial. The first to take the stand will be our Lord Jesus Christ. As the woman is standing in the center, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What then do you say? Remember, saints, what lies behind this question in verse 6? Now they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. The motivation behind this question, saints, is not for them to be enlightened by the mind of Christ, but rather it's for them to trap Jesus Christ. And the trap of the question is this. Here we have a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, so they say, and according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. Now, saints, there is much hypocrisy in this trap. This question is loaded with poison and lies. Let me break this down. First, the scribes and the Pharisees say that this woman has been caught in the act. The issue with that is this. Catching someone in the act of adultery isn't the easiest thing to do. Catching someone in the act of adultery isn't the easiest thing to do. We don't just walk into a room and see a woman and a man in the same room in the act of adultery. It's actually very unlikely and very uncommon. Would suggest that careful planning must have been done in this. Must have suggest that this might have been a setup by the scribes and the Pharisees. That they have been plotting this all night. 
in order to entrap Jesus, they use this woman as a pawn. They don't treat this woman as, a, as an image bearer of God. They, they use her as a pawn on the chessboard to kill Jesus Christ. All of this suggests that this woman who's been caught in the act might have been set up by the religious leaders. Number two, although the law of Moses says that a woman ought to be put to death if caught in adultery, the law also says that the man is to be put in death as well. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now let me ask the scribes and the Pharisees a question. Where is the man? Where is the man? If the woman is to be put to death, so is the man. So why was the man left behind? And why only the woman was drug out? Why is this woman being charged only? Oh, the folly of these men who proclaim to be wise, who proclaim to be the religious elite of the day. They were so-called experts of the Old Testament. How did they miss this main point that the man is to be with the woman? How did they miss this? It's because the men, these evil people are blinded by their sin. That is how they missed it. They are so blinded by their sin. Their hatred and jealousy for Jesus has caused them to do the very thing that they used to beat the people's back with, and that is they broke the law of God. That is what they used to break the people's back with. You are breaking the law of God. What do they do here? They break their own backs by not obeying the law of God. In doing so, saints, they have committed an even greater sin. And that is they are rejoicing over one sin. Oh, how happy, how joyous these men must have been when they, when they saw that this woman had fallen into the trap. Imagine, saints, they want to kill Jesus. In order to kill Jesus, this woman must commit adultery. She must fall into sin. How joyous they must have been that this woman fell for the bait. She sinned. She's sleeping with one who is not her husband. How excited these evil men must have been to see this woman fall in such a gross sin. How enthusiastic they must have been as they are dragging this woman to see Jesus. This is a lesson for us, saints. For we are not to rejoice over the fall of an enemy. We are never to rejoice over the fall of an enemy. We are not to rejoice over one of our enemies or anyone in that matter when they fall into great sin. No matter what they have done to you. Proverbs 24, verses 17 tell us, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Saints of God, here is the logic of this. If God detests sin, then why are you rejoicing over one sin? If God detests sin then we should detest the very thing that He detests. If someone has wronged us, let us pray for their good and not their destruction. And this is what we see these men are doing. They're plotting and praying for Christ's downfall. They're plotting and praying for this woman's downfall. For the trap has been laid to Christ. 
the trap within the question is this. If Jesus were to say that this woman should be stoned, then he would be going against the rules of the day. Because Jews couldn't stone people. Only the Romans can. So if Jesus says, yes, she is to be stoned, they'll report Jesus to the Romans and say, this one is trying to kill someone. And it's beyond his jurisdiction. But if Jesus says she shouldn't be stoned, then he could be accused of teaching against the law. For the law says that any woman caught in adultery should be stoned. What does Christ answer to this trap, saints? Verse 6-7 But when Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What what is Jesus doing here with this response, saints? Simply put, Jesus here is taking the trial off himself and the woman. And he is now placing the scribes and the Pharisees upon the stand. He's reversing their evil intent. Saints of God, what wisdom from our Lord. These men thought that they had the perfect plan in place. That we will catch this woman in sin. Check. We will bring her before Jesus and we will catch Jesus in sin. Check. But they forgot to check the main box, saints. And that is, they forgot to check themselves. They forgot to check themselves. They're worried about everyone else's sin but their own. They forgot to say, but what about me? What about my sin? What about our sinful actions? Jesus, with one simple question, destroys their whole mission Their whole mission blows up right in front of them when Jesus asked this question. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, saints, it's important to note what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that whomever has not ever sinned and will never sin has only the right to throw a stone at her. If that was the case, there'd be no such thing as church discipline. If judging others for their sin is only reserved for those who are without sin, then we can never judge others for their sin. We can never have church discipline. So that's what not, that's not what Jesus is saying, that you must be perfect in order to accuse someone of sin. That's not what he's saying. But rather what he's doing is he's, just, he's exposing the hypocrisy of these men. For they are not upholding the law of God. In fact, we could even say this, that these men are guilty of the same sin of the woman. They brought this woman here because she's caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus here is saying, but you've been caught in the same act as well. You have committed the same sin as her, but in a greater way. And you might say, well, how? How are these men caught in the act of adultery? The text doesn't say that. So when were they caught in the act of adultery? Well, saints, remember, what characterizes the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? What were they known for in the Old Testament as a nation? They were an adulterous nation. 
In the Old Testament, Israel is referred to time and time again as an adulterous nation. As those who turn their back on their husband. God says in Jeremiah, Israel is a prostitute with many lovers. This is Israel. The nation as a whole is characterized as one who continues not to uphold their wedding vows to God. In fact, there's anything that Israel was great at. It was their unfaithfulness to God. Time and time again, God divorces Israel by by removing them from the land and then brings them back and reminds them of of His great love for them. But they never listened. They never returned that love in kind. Israel was an adulterous nation. And here, congregation, as these men stand over this woman, repeating to Jesus that we have caught her. We caught her in the act of adultery. Here Christ is saying, but I've caught you in the act of adultery as well. You have caught her, yes, but I have caught you. In fact, your years of adultery far outweigh and far outlast this woman's act of adultery. They are no better than this woman, in other words. These religious elite of the day are no better than this woman. Why can't they see that? It's because, saints, just as we've learned two weeks ago from Simon and this woman who was a prostitute. What was the, what was the big thing? It was that Simon has not sinned any less than the woman who was a prostitute. The issue with Simon is this, that he just thought less of his sin. The same thing with these scribes and these Pharisees. They minimized their own sin in order to bring the sin of others to light. And in doing so, they make themselves feel better. They want to capture everyone in their own sin while also hiding their sin as far as they weigh, as far as they can from the light. Here Christ is exposing their constant years of adultery. Here this woman, she doesn't represent just merely herself. She represents adulterous Israel. She is Israel. She symbolizes years and years of a failed marriage. And here Christ is saying to this woman, or saying to these men, I have caught you. In fact, you are the ones who should be stoned. In fact, you are the ones who should be put to death. I should be the first one to cast a stone at you. Now, what was the response to Christ's question? Verse 9. Now, when they heard this, they began leaving. One by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman was there. In the center of the courtyard, what we see here, saints, is the conscience of these scribes and Pharisees began to just eat at them. They began to eat them alive as they contemplate their own sin. As they think of their own sin, their own wickedness, it is as if the voice of a thousand men are in their heads saying, you're guilty. That's what the conscience does, right? The conscience, the conscience makes you feel like there was a thousand men in your head all telling you the same thing. You are guilty. You are a sinner. You are no better than this woman. 
This man, whom they hated, whom they seen as a blasphemer, as a liar, no good thing can come from this man. Well, saints, he's not lying at this moment. He's not lying to them. He's telling the truth. They are just as guilty as the woman. And as they are leaving one by one, as the crowd begins to move away, there remains only two. The woman and Jesus Christ. Or as Augustine says, there remained a great misery and a great pity. There remained a great misery, the woman. But, it, but a greater pity for the woman who is Jesus Christ. Jesus turns to the woman. He says to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Where did everyone go? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you. It is as if Jesus is telling this woman, where are your prosecutors? Where is everyone that brought you into the courtroom? Whom are those who put you on the stand? Who is left to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. I do not condemn you either. Oh, saints. Oh, what mercy from our Christ. What mercy from our Christ. Augustine says beautifully, he had no intention of saying, let her be stoned. Because he came not to destroy those whom he found, but to seek those who were lost. He did not come to kill, but he came to save. Congregation, is this not a vivid picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because although, saints, the woman represents Israel, the woman also represents us. We are the woman in this story, are we not? Are we not this woman, saints? Haven't we committed adultery against our Lord in the very beginnings of creation? Did we not need, or rather, we did not need a group of men to prosecute us, for we were already born guilty. But just like this woman, saints, if it wasn't for grace, if it wasn't for mercy, Hear me now, saints, if it wasn't for love, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, you see, saints, the reason why this woman was able to escape death was not because all the evidence suggests that it was a setup. The reason why she was able to escape death was not because the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees outweighed her sin, but rather the reason why she was able to escape death was solely and only because of the saving mercy of Jesus Christ. That is the only reason. The only reason why she was not stoned to death was because Jesus Christ and Him alone. And oh, congregation, how we need to be reminded of how beautiful the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ is. If you have forgotten this, saints, if you've had spiritual amnesia, let me remind you, of how beautiful the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ is. Without mercy, without His grace, oh, what hope is there for us? 
let us be stoned. Let us be stoned if not for mercy, if not for grace. Mercy and grace didn't wait for her repentance, saints. Oh, hear me now. And mercy and grace didn't wait for your repentance. Mercy and grace didn't wait for you to say sorry. Mercy and grace didn't wait for her to say sorry. But while we were still dead in our sin, while we were dead in our sin, saints, mercy and grace snatched us out of the fire and has let to yet us go. Mercy and grace, saints, brought us out of the pit of hell. When we were on our way to hell, God interrupted us. He gave us mercy. He gave us grace. Ultimately, He gives us His Son, Jesus Christ. And He has yet, He has yet to let go of us. He has yet to let go of us. Oh, let us plead for Christ's mercy and grace to hold on to our souls as firmly, as firmly as we know He can hold on to our souls. And here we see saints, from this woman's response to Christ, he call, she calls her Lord. He, she calls him Lord. She calls him Lord, which signifies that Jesus Christ doesn't just save this woman from physical death; he saves her from everlasting death. This woman came to be put to death, to be stoned, and Jesus Christ says, "I'm going to save you, not just from the hands of these evil men." but from the hands of Satan, from the fires of hell, from the wrath of God. But saints, Jesus is not interested in merely saving her soul. And as we come to the ending of this wonderful verses, He's not interested in just saving her soul. But He's interested in transforming her. He's interested in changing her. Consider the last verse from Christ. Go... And from now on, do not sin any longer. Just in case the woman thought that she was going to get off the hook without, without some wisdom. Just in case she thought that she was going to get off the hook without Jesus telling her about herself. Just in case we thought that God would not uphold the law by pardoning her sin. Notice Jesus doesn't say, now you go and live in peace and when you sin again, I'm going to forgive you. Do what you want though. No, he doesn't say that. Here he says, I know what you did. I know why you were brought here. Now go and sin no more. Oh, what what pastoral care he has for this woman. In essence, what Jesus is saying is best summarized by Augustine. He says, you need not to fear about the past, but beware what you do in the future. Saints of God, Who needs to hear this this morning? Don't worry about the past. God has forgiven you. Maybe you have committed a sin even greater than this woman. Maybe you have been caught in the act of adultery. Maybe you have, like the woman that we've learned two weeks ago, that used to dehumanize herself for money. Maybe you've committed sins and sins and they continue to eat at your conscience and Satan continues to tell you that you are no good. Saints of God, consider what this Savior 
this sweet Savior says to this woman, I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. This will remind us, saints, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Jesus Christ is not going to stone us. He had every right to stone this woman, to put this woman to death. He does not. He forgives her. And he says, now don't do it again. Now go live righteously. Saints of God, remember here what Christ says to this woman. For this is not something that we are to notice and we are to consider at the first moments of conversion. Yes, don't sit any longer. We are to wake up every morning and say, now go and sin no more. Every single morning we are to wake up and say, now go and sin no more. In summary, saints, this sermon is not merely a reminder for you, but it's a rehearsal. It's for you to get acquainted with these truths so that they go deep into the marrow of who you are, so much so that you can live in light of such a great pardon. Live now, act like you've been pardoned of much. You've been forgiven of much. Go and sin no more.